and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Hi everyone, producer Ross here. A quick note to say that we have a content warning for this episode. From about 10 minutes in, there are discussions of sexual assault and rape in the context of defamation. Listener discretion is advised. I'm joined today by our research analyst, Jacob Melby. Thank you very much for having me. So what are we talking about today? We're talking today about defamation, how it sits globally and also how it sits in Australia. It's interesting talking about defamation in Australia because we're unusual in the amount of defamation cases that we have every year and we're unusual in the kinds of public figures that can bring defamation cases. I think the stats are based on a report from the Law Council. The UK has 66 million people. We have only 25 million people, as most people know. But in the UK, in total, they have about 268 defamation cases between 2014 and 2018. But Australia had 577, so that's having far less population and far more defamation cases. Yeah, that's crazy. I was expecting that to be proportionately we're higher, but no, absolutely Mm. we're higher. (laughs) And proportionately we're higher. And defamation is dealt with on a state level. In New South Wales, it's like the problem's far worse. Oh, for sure. You see about 10 times the amount of cases in New South Wales than you do in the UK, so pretty crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is how comparatively easy it is to succeed in a defamation action here in Australia. Some people would be surprised to learn that proving what has been said about you is untrue isn't even something that you're responsible for doing if you bring a defamation (laughs) action. The defense of justification, it's called, is the uh, responsibility of the defendant to prove that what they've said is true. Plaintiffs can just bring an action contending that what they've said Uh, or what's been said about them is untrue, and then it's for the defendant to prove that it is. And then also, public figures can bring defamation actions. Obviously, most media reporting tends to be about well-known people, and that significantly increases the number of eligible plaintiffs as well as the attractiveness of bringing the action. For sure. So basically, if we start at the top, just generally, defamation is meant to be a false statement of fact, like you said, Mm. that harms someone's reputation and is published with fault. Now, as you already directly pointed out, a false statement isn't actually an element in Australia. So like in the US, the elements are a false statement that is purporting to be fact itself. That publication was actually to a third person. That fault amounted to at least negligence. So that's an even higher bar set as well that Australia doesn't have. And then that damages was caused to the person that the statement was about. Basically, you have some higher standards in the US. No wonder we have such high levels of defamation cases. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned publication there as well. Now, this is an interesting dynamic worldwide. This isn't unique to Australia. But publication, that that word implies traditional news media. But publication can take place any number of ways. Anyway. We've seen uh, cases in Australia where publication takes place by you know mail drop to the other members of your strata scheme. Mm-hmm. It can take place by Facebook group, by WeChat group. It doesn't have to be broadly published, although the breadth and um, availability period of a publication definitely affect the damages that a a plaintiff might be awarded. And that's a really interesting feature of the internet age as well. If you publish something in a um, print newspaper, it's in circulation for a day, a week perhaps. If you print something online, it 
it's archived, it's available for a very long time, even if it's taken down, it might have been saved, republished, shared millions of times on social media. Publication's a really interesting element, not just here, uh, in Australia, but everywhere uh, in the age of social media. I think that's very important that you just said that it can be distributed millions of times. Because up until very recently in Australia, every time another viewer viewed that piece of supposedly defamatory material, it was another case of defamation in itself. That's right. And and I say up until recently because in, in 2021, um, the model defamation amendment provisions of 2020 were uh, passed in Australia, which set out a model law that has been adopted by states on, on defamation. And it addresses some of the concerns that um, has been raised about Australian law and, as we've said, it being such a prevalent issue, but not all. So in, in this Model Defamation Act, it basically introduced, as we were just talking about, the single publication rule. So for an online publication, that time will run when it's first uploaded or electronically sent, as opposed to every time it was viewed or downloaded. Also, it provided a defence where there's been a reasonable offer of amends. So say the ABC publishes something that's maybe defamatory. Someone says, look, this might be defamatory about me. And they go, oh, okay, okay, sorry, let's make amends to that. And then the person rejects it um, and says, no, I'm just going to sue you and take you through the court system because you shouldn't have said that. Then the ABC can bring the defence that, well, actually, we tried to fix this issue when you brought it up to us. It's kind of redefining the concept of publication to, to be fit for purpose in the modern age. Even before the model law, this is a fascinating element of defamation litigation because um, whether or not there is an, an apology for the publication, even before the model law, affected the quantum of damages that, that could be awarded. And it affected whether or not things like aggravated damages or exemplary damages, which are the special damages categories which aren't compensatory that a court can give to a plaintiff uh, basically to punish the defendant it affects whether or not those things are available as well. And so there's this interesting dynamic where a media organisation is threatened with a defamation action and it can choose to mitigate its risk by apologising and issuing a retraction, sorry, sorry. which doesn't take the risk away, but it might reduce the damages that it's liable for, or double down, say, we're absolutely telling the truth and we're willing to stick to the story all the way through to a final hearing. And so it really puts you on this dichotomous path can either uh, step back or all gas no brakes go straight for the for the final hearing something else that's interesting about that is and we see this in the media coverage of defamation trials involving well-known public figures is that when the suit is defended on the basis of truth a heap more of you know, reputationally damaging material tends to come out mm. in the evidence and is then reported every day by news outlets that are covering the trial, which we should say is not defamation because a defence to defamation is uh, a fair report of public proceedings. So mm-hmm. to report that plaintiff in a defamation case was accused of doing this awful thing in court today not defamatory because it's a fair report of court proceedings. It's a difficult calculus for the plaintiff to make there as well. If I bring this defamation action, do I risk doing even more harm to my reputation by virtue of the coverage of the trial, especially if I lose? And and I think you've brought up a really important point there, which is that although you don't have to prove that the defamatory comment is false, the defendant can bring up that their statement was actually true. And that's a defence to defamation, justification. And there's a a couple of other defences and they've been 
slowly added to over time, for example, by the defamation amendment provisions. The other one is that uh, there's the contextual truth, which is that no harm was caused by the material when taken in context of the whole publication. There's also absolute privilege, which is the publication was made in parliament or in court, like you just said. And I think that's an interesting issue. And that gets raised a little bit in a case of a public figure, John Barillaro suing a YouTuber friendly Geordies, which I'm sure is going to take a whole another episode <laughs> to talk about that whole box of worms. Yeah, so that's an interesting issue. But like you said, that is a defence. So if, if you bring up all this other truthful stuff to defend your defamatory claim, that's it in court. So that's fine. And uh, you mentioned context just before. How about innuendo? Because this is an interesting idea, mm. right? Because the statement itself doesn't have to, on its face, be defamatory, mm. right? It, it can be defamatory in context. The case that I always think of here is a case where a photograph of a prominent Sydney lawyer was displayed in the Sydney Morning Herald alongside some Sydney Mardi Gras coverage and the caption accompanying the photo suggested uh, that this lawyer was gay. Now that's not defamatory on its own. There's no reason why your reputation would be harmed by being gay, uh, at least not with uh, any reasonable person. Mm -hmm. But that that lawyer brought defamation proceedings against the paper and the basis on which he said it was defamatory was, well, in context, I'm a married man, I have children with my wife, this suggests that I'm living a lie and that I'm a liar and calling someone a liar is defamatory. Not, mm. It's not the fact that they said I was gay. And so there's a, a, this interesting idea of innuendo. The other kind of innuendo is where the person isn't identified, but you can identify them from context. Mm. A great example of which is probably the most famous defamation case uh, out there in the news today, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Mm. Amber Heard's op-ed in the Washington Post did not name Johnny Depp, but it did state that she suffered domestic abuse at the hands of her partner in a time period where you would have to infer the person she's referring to is Johnny Depp. So that's an example of uh, innuendo about the plaintiff rather than about the defamatory nature of the statement. And if we throw a stone across the big pond in Australia, another famous case that it deals with innuendo is the very recent, and I think it's probably one of the more prominent cases, or, or a lot of people would have heard about it, which was Christian Porter, the uh, former Attorney General, who sued the ABC over an article by um, a reporter named Louise Milligan about, an, and I quote, unnamed cabinet minister who was accused of a historical sexual assault, so a sexual assault that happened a while ago. Now, here's the interesting part, is that she said an unnamed cabinet minister. So how is anyone going to make out that's Christian Porter? So Christian Porter then goes, look, this is about me, guys, but I didn't do it. And eventually he, took, he did sue them for defamation. And, and a big point of contention was, was the article about him and mm. could you derive that it was about him? And we were talking about publication before. A statement can be defamatory if the innuendo is understood by a subset of the population. Mm. So it's, it's, it doesn't matter that not everyone could understand it from context, right? Some people just aren't aware of the context of any statement. Exactly. Um, if you you know, didn't know who Amber Heard was dating two years ago, you might not have understood the context of that article either. Yeah, exactly. Um, but people who were aware of for whom that person worked, might have been aware of the connection uh, to Christian Porter, and that might be why mm -hmm. um, it was alleged to be defamatory. You know, that raises a, a good point, because what we do see in Australia is a lot of political figures political bringing figures. defamation actions. Lots which, of politicians. Um, 
is concerning, I think, from a implied freedom of political communication perspective, because we are really supposed to have de- defences that dissuade political figures from bringing defamation actions. We've got fair report on proceedings of public concern. We've got qualified privilege about some political things. We've got absolute privilege for parliamentary statements. We've got honest opinion, where we're talking about opinions on political matters rather than statements of fact. But we do see a heap of Australian politicians bringing defamation actions. You just mentioned Christian Porter. We mentioned John Barillaro before. A little while ago, there was Joe Hockey. We've had quite a number. And yeah, I do think it's a concerning aspect of the defamation landscape in Australia that political figures can silence dissent to a degree or silence criticism. There's obviously a difference between saying something that's patently untrue about a person and criticising their policies. But there are cases where there's a where there's a, a blurry line between those two things and it is concerning that might get in the way of, of political discourse. But here's the interesting thing is that yeah we have that defense of that was in the public interest and it was fair reporting on something in the public interest but a lot of the cases we just spoke about fell before that was even introduced in the defamation provisions mm. in that model law which basically introduced a public defense public interest defense that was modeled on the United Kingdom's Defamation Act. Mm. So we, we compared the United Kingdom and we compared Australia and maybe, like, why is there this big disparity? Maybe because they had that public interest and, and we have so many politicians bringing cases forward. But, yeah, it wasn't until recently until that we had that defence itself. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of defamation actions brought by Australian political figures, I think there's been a recent update in Peter Dutton's defamation action. Yeah, so a really popular case. One of the things that piqued my interest in defamation in the first place is that Peter Dutton actually brought a very prominent defamation case against um, Shane Bazzi, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong, who was a refugee advocate. And basically what he did was he put out a six-word tweet and that tweet said, Peter Dutton is a rape apologist and then linked to a Guardian article that reported on what Dutton was saying about some refugees at the time. And basically what Dutton said in, in, in this article reported it was that there were some female refugees that were, um, quote, trying it on by making claims that they'd been raped. And basically all of this was an attempt to get to mainland Australia um, under the guise of getting an abortion after being raped. He was successful at first instance. Yeah, the federal court awarded him actually $35,000 in damages um, for this defamatory tweet, this six-word tweet, mind you. But yeah, like you said, it just had a recent update and it was basically flipped the script. There was an appeal to the full bench of the federal court and, and this decision was, yeah, like we said, handed down literally two days ago as of recording. And the court decided that the federal court initially had erred in concluding that the ordinary reader would not read that accompanying Guardian article. What the full federal court said uh, changes the context in which you would understand the imputation behind the tweet. Exactly. So we, we were talking about innuendo, and that's first natural and ordinary meaning. So the original decision related to the natural, ordinary meaning of the term rape apologist, which means someone who excuses rape. And then they said, you're not going to have any innuendo because there's six words there, two of those words are rape apologist, and that means this. Now, the, the federal court, the full bench of the federal court then said, actually, the Guardian article will be read with it. And if you read it in light of that context, you get this sort of underlying meaning that's a bit different to the natural ordinary meaning, which is that Mr. Dutton is actually sceptical about these specific claims of rape and, and not excuses rape as a whole. Interesting case about links, really. Interesting case about context in social media. Because I suppose there is an open question about whether users of a short-form content social media platform like Twitter, the appeal of which is that tweets have a very limited character limit, 
would read a long-form article that accompanies a six-word tweet. But I think it is interesting that the court has to grapple with this question. You know? Yeah, how many people are going to put on their tweets, in my opinion, in my honest opinion, don't sue me, please. Right? <laughs> Who's going to use their, their precious characters exactly. to put, this is a statement of the author's opinion only. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, about about that tweet. So we, we just said that it actually is claiming, it's actually making out that Dutton was sceptical about specific claims of rape. You can look at that, what well, that's still, it's still saying. He's viewing rape in, in a certain light. And Shane Bazzi and his lawyers actually argued that, one, it was they raised the defences of, it's either his honest opinion or two, it was, like we just were talking about, fair reporting on something that's in the public interest. So basically what the court found is that Mr Dutton failed to prove the tweet conveyed the imputation that he asserted, that he was excusing rape as a whole, and instead the court found that, you know, it was these specific claims. And because he couldn't make out that defamatory meaning, he couldn't make out the elements of defamation. Yeah, I mean, that's that's um, exactly right. It's less so a defence to defamation and more just the essence of a defamation action in Australia. You don't need to prove that it's false, but what you do need to prove is that the communication that was published has that particular defamatory meaning and that a reader, a reasonable person, would take that meaning away from it. You know, exactly. If a reasonable person is more likely to take away a different non-defamatory meaning from from that publication then it's not defamatory. Exactly. Yeah, so they raised the defences, but that wasn't really the crux of the, the appeal itself. Really interesting case. Well, I think that's just about all the time we have on Sidebar by Hearsay the Legal Podcast today. Uh, if you liked this chat about defamation law in Australia and abroad, we do have another episode on the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard defamation trial itself where we do a bit of a deep dive into why that particular train wreck is so fascinating, including all of those great hearsay objections that have been memed into oblivion. Mm-hmm. So check that episode out next if you like this one. You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening. Listening.